there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 70, Communist Entanglements. In focusing on the northern and central parts of China in the past few weeks, I admit I've kind of let events in the south fall by the wayside. But I wanted to give the northern warlords a fair shake in this accounting, as histories often gloss over their squabbles and wars. Which is mainly because the defining factions to come out of this era, the Kuomintang and the Communist Party of China, really got going in the far south of China proper. Their success wasn't a historical inevitability, though. Sun Yat-sen, the leader of the Kuomintang, was the only national figure of any importance between the two groups, and for the longest time he depended on the military support of allied warlords to push his vision and protect his attempts at setting up an alternative government. He was a man of ideals who inspired millions with his talk of democracy and national empowerment, and that talk allowed the KMT to remain a national-level organization with broad support even in the face of warlord opposition, but it didn't translate into an army. And while the southern warlords were happy to use him as a figurehead, they never hesitated to remove him whenever he became inconvenient. This had happened back in 1918, and it happened again in 1922 after tensions arose between him and his most recent warlord ally, Chen Jiangming. As I covered back in episode 67, Conflict between them broke out in the open, and in the summer of 1922, Soon was forced to flee to Hong Kong via gunboat. Now, since 1911, this was the third time that Soon was forced to turn tail and run, and you might be wondering just how in the hell the KMT was going to become the dominant force in China. Well, he wound up making some very powerful new friends. In January 1923, Soon was introduced through contacts in the Communist Party of China, or the CPC for short, to Adolf Yaffe, an ambassador from the fledgling Soviet Union. Yaffe had come to Shanghai to encourage Soon to join with the admittedly still new CPC and drive out the warlords and unify China. The Soviets saw a unified China as a natural ally against a world that was universally against them, and Soon's KMT represented the most left-leaning vehicle in which to achieve that. Their reasoning was that Soon's movement would stage a bourgeois revolution that would create the conditions later for a proper socialist one. Soon's own anti-imperialist stance was just icing on the cake. Soon and his rising military subordinate, Chiang Kai-shek, were both lukewarm on treating the CPC as an equal partner, but did agree to allow them to join the KMT as a party within a party. The Soviets found this acceptable, as they figured taking over the KMT from the inside was a distinct possibility. This would make the process of transitioning from capitalism to socialism much easier if the bourgeois revolution were controlled from the inside. The two groups struck the bargain, and the Soviets started sending in military equipment and advisors to the KMT. This alliance would transform the Kuomintang, not just in a material way, however. With the assistance of the Soviets and the CPC, the nationalists would become a far more disciplined group, both militarily and politically. The KMT before shared a characteristic amongst the warlord factions in that it was focused on having a platform directed at the upper social strata. Granted, this was a more democratic platform, but nevertheless it held a narrow focus of which parts of society to appeal to. Having allied with the communists, this started to shift in immediately tangible ways. Moving forward, the KMT would make use of mass engagement with the full body of the Chinese population. Their cause of a united and democratic China that could stand on its own strength in the world was to now be the cause of the entire population. China would be transformed at all levels instead of just at the top. 
instead of allowing the national elites to provide the impetuous for development, the party was called upon to develop the nation's embryonic industrial might and enact land reforms needed to provide immediate relief to the farmers. These might all seem like obvious necessities, but the KMT was the only major organization campaigning for even these basic reforms. As I discussed earlier, the warlords were primarily concerned with expanding their industrial bases for the purposes of conquest, with no long-term vision behind any of their efforts. And at least in these earlier years, the KMT represented a less corrupt option for China. If you're familiar with the downfall of the Nationalists in 1949, you know full well that by then they were corrupt as all hell and had ceased being a net good for the average citizen. But... Back in the early 20s, it was still a fairly young party in its makeup, composed of driven idealists that weren't afraid to suffer setbacks and keep going to help their country. Uh, the following decades wouldn't be kind to the group, but for now, there was cause for optimism and they would enjoy a good deal of trust from much of the populace. Soon also began being a good deal clearer on what he was actually hoping to achieve politically, which was good because being relatable was going to be a key weapon for the nationalists. This was most simply encapsulated by his three principles of the people, which were nationalism, democracy, and livelihood. This meant loyalty to the overall nation and escape from foreign domination, guaranteed political rights, and a focus on lifting the masses out of poverty. Also, by the early 20s, Soon had grown more than fed up with the Europeans and their constant interference and made anti-imperialism a core tenet of his ideology, something that pleased his new Soviet allies greatly. As part of the economic reforms he proposed, he also called for restrictions on foreign goods and investments, preferring that China develop self-sufficient enterprises. Economically, the state would take a more active hand in public life, regulating industries closely and modernizing agriculture to improve output, and theoretically ease the conditions of the peasantry. The intent wasn't to manage the businessmen and landlords per se, but rather manage their more harmful impulses. Which uh, does leave some ambiguity there as to how far the nationalists were supposed to go, but Soon was pretty dead set on avoiding a class war, so he was simultaneously promising the upper classes that their interests would still be served, while promising the proletariat that high tides would lift all ships which was optimistic, but keep in mind he wasn't close to being in power yet, so he didn't have to deliver on anything to get people on his side. For his new government, soon envisioned a five-power structure with the familiar executive, legislative, and judiciary branches being joined with an examination one that monitored the quality of the civil servants, as well as a censorate branch which would monitor the conduct of officials and remove them if need be, the last two basically being quality control for the other three branches. This wasn't going to be implemented immediately, though, and Soon would never live to see anything close to it. Instead, his plan called for his revolution against the warlords to proceed in three stages. The first would be the military conquest of the nation, followed by a period of national education to prepare them for the responsibility of republican government, and finally then, the theorized constitution would be implemented. A cynic would point out that the proposed revolution could get stuck pretty easily in the first two phases, which admittedly was exactly what wound up happening. But in a light defense of the nationalists, they did have a lot going on over the next two decades that made implementing Soon's vision a low priority. Uh, that all being said, it was at least a vision, and in 1923, that was so incredibly better than pretty much all the alternatives. Because while Soon's plans were definitely more reformist in nature than the revolution he was claiming they would be, 
There wasn't really another game in town just yet. There was, though, an embryo of one taking shape, and as I mentioned, by 1923, they were looking to lodge themselves directly inside Soon's own movement. I'm talking about the CPC. As I ended on back in episode 66, the origins of the Chinese Communist Party were rooted in the May 4th protest movement. And while that movement had died down by August of 1919, many of China's intellectuals were left unsatisfied at its lack of results. Real revolutionary energy had been displayed, but there had been no organization to harness and lead it. Two early figures helped organize Marxist organizations to attempt and rectify that. Chen Dujio, we already met back in episode 66, the creator of the New Youth magazine and the leading figure for reform. He had already been moving towards Marxism in 1919, and the broad appeal of the protests in that year convinced him it was the proletariat he needed to mobilize, not the intelligentsia. That, coupled with his fury over foreign exploitation of China, caused him to be disillusioned with the liberal democracies of the West. The other man was named Li Dezhao, who followed much the same trajectory, starting as an intellectual and coming to the conclusion that a mass party based on anti-imperialism and anti-capitalism was needed to save the nation. The example of the Russian Revolution was also vital to providing inspiration to the increasingly radicalized intellectual class. China, much like Tsarist Russia, was a pre-industrial society, and ergo not an especially attractive opportunity for a traditional Marxist revolution. The Leninist example of mostly skipping the industrialization that was supposed to be done via capitalism and going straight to socialism was an enticing one to follow, and the Bolsheviks themselves were greatly interested in their eastern neighbor. China was not just right there, but also populous and tired of its exploitation, factors that made it a valuable potential partner. By 1920, Lenin had hit upon a two-part strategy for the colonized parts of the world, with an eye towards China in particular. The local communist movements of colonies or exploited nations would form an alliance with bourgeois groups in their respective homelands, whereupon they would break out of their imperialist circumstances and into more liberal ones. All the while, the Communist Party would grow its base and organize the proletariat to stage a revolution against the bourgeois groups once the time was right. This would take some doing in much of the world where political activity was still restricted or in its infancy, but in China, the KMT was right there. Russian agents began making contact with Chen and Li, and the various cells of socialists across China were drawn ever closer starting in August 1920, just after the fall of Duan's Anhui clique and the rise of the Zhili in the north. In July 1921, a small group of 12 met for the first party congress of the CPC. Chen and Li were not among them, but did receive credit for co-founding the party. The group met in the French sector of Shanghai and had to disperse and reconvene south of the city in Zhejiang province due to police intervention, which was going to be a reoccurring event for the party. The group of 12 only represented a party of 57 people in total, of which Chen was decided to be the first general secretary and would be the party's leader up until 1927. For a while, it was unknown what exactly was to be done with the group, and while the CPC was on paper a highly centralized organization, the low membership count, only growing to 300 by 1923, meant that the party leadership didn't have the tools to actually control what cells of socialists were out there. This led to questions about the party's viability. The answer that the Soviet liaisons presented to them was the alliance with the KMT. Now, this was not a natural match. 
The CPC members, especially Chen and Lee, were terribly unimpressed with the idea of joining a reformist organization posing as a revolutionary one. Lenin and the others hadn't had to ride the coattails of some other party during their revolution, did they? And becoming a tool to the KMT meant that the party itself might be compromised afterwards, reduced to just a tool of the bourgeois. And didn't their ideology say they needed to, you know, get rid of said bourgeois? The two-stage plan proposed by Lenin didn't carry a lot of weight with the Chinese at first. But the CPC ultimately went along with the plan, officially starting in June 1923 to act within the KMT. Members of the CPC would have double membership with the Kuomintang. Soon himself was not terribly concerned about them due to their small size. To him, they were merely a condition of Soviet support, which is what he really cared about. The merger did have a side effect for the KMT down the road as the CPC started influencing what was to be the leftist bloc within the greater party. They would be the far-left component and would encourage the growth of what would become known as the left KMT. Anyone to the right would naturally be called the right KMT, or just the conservatives. But for now, they were all united under soon. In January 1923, at about the same time he was striking his bargain with the communists, Soldiers loyal to Soon managed to regain the city of Guangzhou. And by loyal, I mean some of Soon's supporters in Hong Kong managed to buy them off and they turned against Chen and drove off his garrison. The reason Soon continued to gravitate towards this city in particular was because it was the largest and richest in the south and sat at the mouth of the Pearl River system, which, running back to its source westward, covered most of the southern provinces Soon had been trying to control for the past six years. Warlords from Yunnan again decided to side with Sun, and Chen Zhongming's forces in Guangdong and Guangxi were terribly reduced, with his fortunes never quite recovering. He would fight on in the countryside in the south for the next two years, and even come close to expelling Sun from Guangzhou again, but eventually wound up exiled in Hong Kong in 1925. And just to allay any lingering concerns about the roller coaster rides of the KMT's fortunes, they weren't going to be leaving the South under duress from here on out. As the KMT's and Chen's armies played a game of cat and mouse in Guangdong, Soon would finally get a chance to make formal arrangements with Soviet representatives regarding their alliance in the latter part of 1923. Soon was borderline desperate for the support offered by the Soviets, but he had been backstabbed so many times he wasn't about to fully trust them. His mounting problems in Guangdong, though, forced him to take a hard look at the outfit he was running. His army was divided, as he still only had so many actual KMT troops directly bound to him, and many of his warlord allies were a fractious lot at the best of times. And the troops were still poorly equipped and trained, hardly the caliber of the more battle-hardened troops of the northern warlords. Finally, the countryside of the south in this environment was understandably unsafe, with control from Guangzhou being charitably described as spotty, and the city itself being the only solid holding soon could count on at any one time. Given that there was basically a guerrilla war going on in Guangdong, though, this really shouldn't come as a surprise. Soon simply had to carry on through. But a common area of frustration that he couldn't ignore or just carry on through was money. Keeping the troops fed and equipped, plus his warlords sufficiently compensated for their, uh, loyalty, demanded a constant stream of revenue, which, given everything going on, was easier said than done. He did attempt the age-old expedient of securing a foreign loan, but was rebuffed by the British in Hong Kong. Apparently, being forced into exile almost half a dozen times in your life makes you a risky investment. So, soon started taking matters into his own hands. 
First, he seized control of the collection of the salt taxes. You may remember back in episode 63 how Yuan Shikai took out a substantial foreign loan, and part of the conditions of that loan was that the Westerners oversaw parts of the Chinese economy to make sure that the money would definitely be collected, which could then be used to pay on the loan. That was still going on, and even in the South, the consortium of nations who provided the initial loan were still ensuring that the taxes were collected. Soon, though, was getting desperate and commandeered those taxes in Guangzhou. Luckily for him, though, by this time, things were falling apart, with all the constant fighting and government chaos being caused by the click wars, and many of the warlords had acted in similar fashion and directed all that money to their own coffers in their own local territories. So, on this first move, Soon got away with it without getting into too much trouble. A little later on in December 1923, though, Soon would try taking back another source of revenue from the West and move to take control of all customs duties in Guangzhou. This proved to be too much, as the Maritime Customs Service, the department tasked with collecting customs duties, was still in full operation and well-staffed with Westerners, which meant they weren't letting go of that particular money faucet. Under threat of a Western attack, Soon backed down from his seizure, but he was highly annoyed at this interference by the foreign powers, and this led him to make a final break in his mind about his chances of getting support from the West, and that while he didn't want to become too bound to the Soviets, they did hate the imperialist powers just as much as he did. He would very soon start looking to make his connection with the Soviet Union much more of a full working relationship, and not just him getting some guns and money. That would require, though, that he modify the KMT a bit from his original vision of strict reform, and start integrating more revolutionary elements into his platform. In October 1923, with his position becoming increasingly secure, soon started to get serious about how the KMT would need to change in order to take over to China. The party itself was kind of a hodgepodge at this point. It was originally assembled from all the old revolutionaries from the Qing days, picked up support during that brief window when it was the ruling party, the Republic of China, and then its character changed again after becoming an underground party in foreign and internal exile, with intermittent homes in the south of the country. Wonderful Shanghai, with all its segmented jurisdictions, was considered its home, with Guangzhou being important as the capital from which it actually governed things. Its membership was therefore varied, and having been around formally for over a decade at this point meant that the party members had built up their own networks of contacts that could be used for the betterment of the group as a whole. Uh, this could be businessmen, local officials, the occasional warlord, and even criminal gangs. Chiang Kai-shek, for example, was in pretty deep with the Shanghai underworld scene during his earlier years with the party, and he was far from alone. Uh, even Sun Yat-sen had some dealings with the triads in Guangzhou. In a time of almost cartoonish corruption, it was useful to keep any avenue of influence open, regardless of how skeevy your associates might be. This ragtag group also cut across political spectrums, although the party itself was mostly educated in some ways, so they had some common ground there. Uh, some of the rank and file wanted simple reform, others saw systematic problems that needed drastic measures, even genuinely revolutionary ones, to resolve. But the thing that united them was the same operating idea the party had begun with, a modernized China that could rely on its own strength. But so far, they were as far away from that goal as they had ever been. They had their base in the south again, but seemed stuck in a slap fight with Chen Zhongming and whatever random warlord popped in that given month. The lack of success probably made the idea of allying with the Soviets a lot easier than it might have been in previous years. To ensure a smooth partnership, the Soviets sent Mikhail Borodin to provide a guiding hand for Soon. 
Brodin was one of the premier international agents of communism, having traveled all over the world in the name of the revolution. Unlike most other Bolsheviks, he had a wealth of experience in working with non-Russians. When in October 1923, Soon started working on reforming the party, he appointed Brodin to help advise. Surprise, surprise, Brodin's proposals looked a lot like your typical Leninist organization. At his suggestion, the KMT would be reformed with a more standardized pyramidical structure, with the districts reporting to the next largest unit of governance until it reached a single national level headed by Soon. A Congress composed of party members would elect an executive committee, which would handle the running of the party, provide appointments, and direct the smaller committees out in the provinces. And remember how I said the KMT members had acquired their own networks over time? Well, from now on, they were being directed to mesh those networks closer into the KMT proper. Another aspect the communists quickly made their presence felt was in the KMT's engagement with the common people of China. In Chinese society, being a farmer was looked down upon by anyone who wasn't a farmer. This, of course, despite the fact that the vast majority of the population worked in agriculture. Even the major landholders that personally owned vast tracts of farmland usually didn't work the soil themselves. Instead, they rented it out to peasants who worked the land and sent a steady, passive income to their landlord. Naturally, the CPC hated this and, from within the KMT, started working towards organizing as much of the Chinese peasantry as they possibly could. This was quickly met with suspicion by much of the rest of the KMT, which really you can just assume that anything the CPC does would be looked upon with some mighty powerful side-eyes from the conservative wing. However, luckily for the CPC, the KMT's attitudes towards farmers largely mirrored society as a whole. While the larger governing body of the KMT did set up programs to organize and educate farmers over the course of 1924, most of the rank and file were uninterested in going out to the impoverished countryside and engaging with the undereducated masses. So these programs came to be dominated by the CPC by default. A Farmers Movement Training Institute was established to train instructors to go out in the countryside and organize, educate, and indoctrinate the peasants. By early 1925, those efforts paid off, and throughout the South, there were numerous farmer associations in operation. While relatively small, really only organizing less than 100,000 members amongst a peasantry that was many times larger, these embryonic groups were active in providing farmers a united front in resisting rent increases from their landlords and also to resist their predatory taxation. This notably led to conflict, as the landlords didn't take this lying down and employed the same tactics as the union busters we in the West are well familiar with. Thugs and extrajudicial militias went into the villages and burned a few down and made some selective killings in others. The farmers fought back, which then incited more violence. So now, in addition to the warlords chasing each other's tails, you had landholders and tenants burning each other's homes down in the South. Like I mentioned earlier, all this communist influence wasn't unnoticed by the KMT members themselves, and while some were receptive to the new message, others had their deep suspicions. Barodin, though, ignored the tensions and tried to encourage Soon to redistribute farmlands from the landlords to the peasants in November 1923 in order to excite mass support. But Soon declined, under pressure from some of his veteran, read conservative, colleagues. Soon almost agreed to reducing the peasants' rents and to establish labor unions, but backed away from that too. Things eventually got tense enough that the, some of the party establishment formally questioned the communist influence in the party. Soon played this off by emphasizing that his alliance was with the Soviets, that him taking in the CPC was merely a small condition, and that the native communist party held no decision-making power itself. 
which was perfectly true, it was soon in the KMT leadership calling the shots. What made the conservatives nervous, though, was that more and more of the KMT officials were buddying up with the communists. This conflict laid bare the left and right split that was emerging within the KMT. On the right were the neo-traditionalist nationalists like Chang, who sought to modernize China by taking the most applicable elements of representative government and economic modernization, while simultaneously keeping the social orders and conventions of the past. Basically, they sought to bring the old Confucian mindset into the modern world. A liberal democracy with Chinese characteristics, if you will. On the other side was the left wing, which was heavily influenced by the communists and other socialist-style movements. They rejected the traditional order and instead sought a true revolution in society. Classes would be dismantled, gender equality established, and the economy would be geared towards providing for the immediate needs of the people and not the market. The blueprint of the farmers' associations I described would be applied to the nation as a whole. The standard leftist playbook, really. Neither the left or right wings of the KMT held enough sway or even had the inclination to try and oust soon, however, and those who were set against the CPC presence within the KMT worked fervently to get soon to see things their way. And by mid-1924, things were starting to get critical within the Kuomintang. The party leadership had managed to get their hands on an internal CPC communication, clearly laying out that they were using their positions within the KMT to hollow it out from within and hijack it when the proper time came. This could be called paranoia, but that truly was what the CPC were up to. Baroden was eventually confronted, but he coldly informed the Kuomintang leadership that if the CPC was cast out, then Soviet assistance would follow along with it. The CPC, for its part, was also looking to make a move as well. They had their personnel spread across the KMT at most every level like a shadow, and were convinced they could take it over. However, cooler heads prevailed during this summer political crisis. Soon appointed a separate council, composed of his hand-picked agents, to set clear policy directions for the Kuomintang as a whole to follow exactly, including the CPC members. Baroden, for his part, would be a special advisor to the council to make sure the communists had a voice, and in exchange, he leaned on the CPC to knock off their takeover plans and take the sweetheart deal they already had. They were laying the groundwork of revolution, but if they acted now, even if on the off chance they did take over the KMT, then they would have the responsibility of setting up a government capable of not just holding the South together, but taking over the nation as a whole. Baroden was practical-minded enough to know that even his own communistic compatriots were not up to that challenge just yet. So, inter-party plus a party, peace was restored and the CPC lived to revolution another day. And soon needed his party unified in the days to come, as events outside the South were getting very interesting. By the end of 1924, the Zhili clique would lose its war to Zhang Zhoulin and break apart meaning by early 1925, the northern two-thirds of China were going to be locked in that four-way struggle for supremacy that I covered last week. With the return of Duan to nominal national leadership, Soon saw an opportunity to re-engage with national politics and maybe engineer a final settlement that would bring peace to the nation. And failing that, the warlord fragmentation was such it might finally be viable to launch his proposed northern expedition. Too bad for Soon, though, he was already suffering from the cancer that would take his life in early 1925. It would be for the next generation of Chinese leaders to guide the country past the era of the warlords, and it'll be during Soon's twilight days that we'll pick up next week. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.